if you're an application builder right now, choosing a specific ecosystem is actually limiting your target audience. And we've heard this, right? Oh, you should build on that chain. You should build on that chain. That logic is broken because it should not be for a chain audience. It should be for every audience. This episode is brought to you by Access Protocol. Access Protocol is the best way to get access to premium crypto content without the ads, without the annoying subscriptions that are impossible to cancel. It's crypto native. It's here today. Go check them out. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lightspeed. Today, we're joined by Ilya Polosukin. Welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, pumped to have you on. Ilya is the co-founder of Near. And what, what's funny is when I joined BlockWorks here about two years ago, my research paper that I had to do to get the job was actually on you and Near. So we're coming full circle at this point. Um, Near has been an absolute powerhouse. I knew from the beginning and also just getting ready for this podcast, you truly are one of the most creative, interesting people in the space. And so is Near. And Nier has quite the history going all the way back to 2017. So I want to get into all the features that you're working on today. But I think to set kind of the context for everyone, can we start with Nier AI and what happened in 2017? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, my background is in machine learning and AI. I was working for about 10 years before I switched and dive into uh, blockchain space. And uh, I actually was uh, at Google Research where a team of us worked on technology that now powers all of the uh, kind of chat, chat GPT, mid-journey, and other uh, kind of advancements on AI. So the T stands for transformers. And uh, kind of worked on that. I left Google and we started near AI with this idea that we wanted to teach machines to code, which in 2017 sounded like science fiction. And right now sounds like, yeah, you know, you kind of see this is happening. Um, now, we did not have infinite amount of money with, like OpenAI, and so we were trying to kind of collect a smarter data set for our uh, kind of modeling, and we engaged a lot of students around the world. So we literally had, you know, hundreds of students in you know, China, Eastern Europe, and other countries that were writing codes for us, writing descriptions, writing comments, and we had trouble paying them. Like people in China don't have bank accounts, they have WeChat. Right. In Eastern Europe, you cannot send money to some countries uh, just from U.S. And so for us, the journey in blockchain started with like, hey, we need to send money to people programmatically, easily, and not think about if they have bank accounts and like what is the whatever Swift transfers and whatnot. And we're doing it at micro like at micro sizes, right? 15 cents. And neither Bitcoin or Ethereum back in like 2018, like even back then, the fees were already way too high for the amounts we were sending. And so like the fees were higher than the amounts we were sending. So diving in, you know, we looked across the space and realized that at least, you know, from our perspective, nobody was trying to solve it in the right way. And uh, yeah, kind of pivoted from near AI to near protocol, really trying to bring something that's extremely usable, scales to billions of users and is able to kind of continue scale and uh, kind of provides a developer environment that, you know, we would want to build on. Yep. And then Nier launched in 2020 on mainnet. One distinguishing factor of Nier, I think it was the first blockchain in production with sharding. And this is back in the day before Ethereum really had the modular roadmap that you might call now with rollups. I think at the time they were focusing on the 64 um, execution and data shards. And Ilya, I remember, one, I just want you to talk about sharding in general because, you know, our audience is largely from Solana and that was never a thing. I think Anatoly actually used to be on a, on a podcast and it's called No Sharding. <laughs> So it's yeah, almost like the anti- <laughs> we've had we've had those battles. So the history is actually our office was 
around the corner from Solana's office in San Francisco. And so we would actually go get drinks in this place, Red Door, uh, in San Francisco after work with Anatoly and argue about all kinds of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that's great background. I didn't know that happened. I will say, I've always seen that you um, are um, very complimentary with every other ecosystem out there. You've done a lot of whiteboard sessions. It's really cool. I'll put links to those in the show notes. Um, But I just want to talk to you about why did you go with this sharding strategy? And I know at one point you actually sat down for seven months and you're like, we need to redo this whole thing. We're going to come back out with new sharding, and that's kind of what you're working on today. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the history is like, you know, I'm coming from Google. My co-founder is worked at Microsoft, but also at the company called Single Store. And if you worked in any Web2, like, scale, scaled companies, the sharding is something that's just like, it's there. It's like, you do everything in a sharded way, right? Like, you cannot imagine processing internet, right, and training a model on one computer. You need to do it at, you know, thousands of machines in parallel uh, at scale. And so for us, kind of sharding was the only thing that we, you know, like it was clear that's like, yes, you will maximize performance one machine, but one machine will never be enough to kind of for all the, for all the scale and uh, kind of compute you want to do. And so how do we get all like multiple parallel processing happening at the same time in blockchain, in a trustless environment? And at the same time, not make it feel like you're, you know, interacting with a ton of different actors. Like, you know, you, you don't go, when you go to Netflix, you don't feel like you're interacting with different data centers. You don't selecting like, oh, you know, today I'm going to use Oregon or tomorrow I'm going to, you know, be streaming from Taiwan. And by the way, this movie is watched by a thousand people. So you need to pay a higher fee right right now. Like that, that's not how it works, right? They just like all balanced out behind the scene. You know, there's multiple data centers involved and you don't think about it. So for us, that's kind of the core where we're coming from is like to, you know, if we assume, you know, billion user kind of uh, scale, you need something that can, you know, not just maximize performance of one computer, but have, you know, as many computers parallel processing as uh, it's needed so it can actually dynamically scale. And at the same time, you should not break people's head with understanding all that. Like even for developers, you should not need to think about like, oh, I'm on shards 57, you know, what am I doing? Like, no, you just deploy your app, it just runs and you don't think about it. So that's kind of the basis of the, of like our, our thesis with everything we're doing. And even now, I mean, we'll, we'll touch on it later, but, you know, obviously we have this proliferation of rollups and other chains, app chains. And so like, we're actually trying to bring the same thesis just like one level up and actually like, well, can we do the same thing, but for all chains and just hide the complexity of infrastructure behind the scenes in a very easy way. So, so going to sharding. Yeah. So originally we talked a lot with kind of Ethereum folks who were researching that for a while. Um, we started building kind of a design, but yeah, we scrapped all of that and threw it away. <laughs> and so, uh, we had proposed a design called Nightshade, which is again, really trying to, um, kind of focus on the simplicity and in a way latency, like low latency in the sense that, so like now people call them rollups. So like, in, let's just say that every account is an independent rollup or app chain or a blockchain. And this is what it gives you now is that you can put this account on a separate computer at any time and, you know, it's storage and it's transaction processing happens there and they all independent and and kind of can run in parallel. Now, obviously, if you have, you know, a million accounts, this is very efficient. You don't want to have a million machines 
processing it. So you bundle them into kind of bundles that one machine can process, right? So let's say on this machine, you have a million accounts. On this machine, you have a million accounts. And then on another machine, you have one account because it's actually big. It's a very popular application. It's been used by a million people, right? So you kind of have this mapping of the account space to machines, and that's your actual like physical shards. Now, as a user, you don't see any of that. As a user, you use one blockchain. And so we kind of package every second, we package all that into one block, which contains all this kind of uh, actual shards. And uh, so from a user perspective, it looks like one single blockchain that just produces a block every second. And, uh, you know, the block size in a way can be varying, you know, can have multiple, you know, as many machines as needed. So that's kind of overall design. Now, there's a lot of complexity there because, you know, security, how to ensure that if shard is compromised, all this stuff. Uh, and actually, uh, we, the original design we put out in 2019, uh, we were, you know, there was a few things that like, came up, um, you know, in research since then. And so we actually are releasing, and it's on Incentivized Testnet as of yesterday, um, a new new design and kind of a part of new uh, shard, kind of sharding next phase. Uh, with stateless validation, where what it allows to do is the block producers kind of that produce uh, each independent shard, they only they need to store the whole state and they store it in memory now. And this is actually very important for, for folks in Solana ecosystem is because Solana, like you need to have the full state on every server, right? So, and the state continues growing, right? And, it, and it's, you know, reasonably large. You cannot like, I mean, you can probably require to have like lots and lots of RAM but you know, it's continuously expanding. Because we have sharding, we can limit the amount of size of state on each independent shard. And we just add more machines with kind of when it grows. So we can keep the whole state in memory, which obviously is way more performant. The biggest bottleneck right now is state updates on the hard drives. And so now uh, those block producers produce kind of the state transition and they keep the state in the block, so, so-called stateless validation, then is done by all the other validators. So now we can have, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of validators who receive the block and don't need to have the state uh, available at all to them. They just need to validate this block in independent. And so that's kind of the new design we, we just, again, launching uh, in the Incentivized Testnet and, you know, it's going to be coming to Mainnet in May. And so that's kind of completes a lot of the sharding kind of roadmap that we put out back in 2019 with all the different pieces uh, in architecture. But as you said, like we launched with, you know, uh, sharding with cross-shard transactions with all of this packaged up and hidden from the user. And so the benefit was of this design from the start is that we can continue growing number of shards, changing shard layouts, add whatever, you know, performance improvements in each individual, in like each independent shard uh, can, you know, for example, even run uh, different VM, and all of that is kind of independent, like for users and developers, massive changes, right? So we've had over 48 protocol changes, right, kind of happening without any like uh, interruptions for the uh, for use for kind of for users uh, just by validators upgrading software. So that's probably like you know in a nutshell. And there's a lot more interesting stuff. So for people who are interested in kind of running uh, and participating in testnet, that's probably one thing to uh, kind of dig in there. So that gives me a lot of next questions, and <laughs> I think there's about six I have in mind. But I'll start with 
the most basic one. So just for the re or listeners who are not technical, maybe another way to think about sharding is assume you have some set of books from A to Z, like a library, and you store it all on one machine. With sharding, you basically pick a scheme and then maybe you store all the ones from A to N on one machine and then P to Z after uh, on other machine. So which brings me to the question, what is how do you guys decide what the scheme is? Like how do what is what does that actually look like in terms of the sharding scheme? Yeah, so the way it works right now and the way um, kind of we want it, we're going to continue working on. So the way it works right now is uh, we have, uh, well, we have four shards right now. We're going to be actually resharding to five shards and it's a government governance decision. So like kind of between core team and validators, there's a decision to like kind of to shard the network in this specific scheme. So you just define the breakpoints, as you said, like, you know, up to N goes to one shard and O to Z is going to another shard, right? So you decide the breakpoints. Now, in the future, what we want is based on load, it actually determines as breakpoints and it kind of changes dynamically from epoch to epoch based on kind of the overall load of the system. So this is what we call dynamic resharding. Uh, so this is kind of the next stage of this, uh, of this whole uh, kind of uh, development. But uh, so far, just because like each shard is actually, you know, capacity of what any other blockchain, you know, performant blockchain would have, we, you know, uh, even with four shards, it's been pretty performant for, we have over like 15 million daily actives pretty much, uh, sorry, 15 million monthly actives over 1.5, 1 billion uh, daily actives. Um, but yeah, kind of that, that's a core idea. Mm -hmm. So one thing I also want to, inquire about let's say with uh web 2 sharding is it makes a lot of sense because first of all you do have that scale like web 2 is used by millions of apps and serves a lot of volume and the trust assumptions aren't necessarily the same right you don't necessarily care too much about verification if i'm being honest whereas in web web 3 right uh first of all we're not exactly sure if we need that much scale currently i mean just currently we don't there's not to say we'll never will but then there's also additional assumptions that you introduce in, in complexity. And um, I want to ask you what you think about like the common criticisms. And I'm also curious why you think nobody really approached it, because it's such an obvious idea in Web2, right? But why, why you think, uh, based on your research, why nobody had done this uh, in practice until you guys? Yeah, so maybe there's two, two kind of questions there. One, probably the... the worth answering and kind of being uh, upfront is what is a trade-off? And the biggest trade-off actually on a developer side, because every contract and account are in a way parallel roll-up chain, whatever, there is no atomic compo composability uh, between accounts and contracts. And that is a pretty big trade-off. Uh, and this is more akin to, you know, Web2 kind of, you know, services don't compose, they just, they interact with each other. Uh, and so that is, you know, compared to, for example, Solana or, you know, any other monolithic chain where you can have, you know, call some number of contracts, touch some number of pieces of data. And if something fails, you roll back the whole thing right here. You need to handle the rollback and kind of interaction between contracts in the async environment and kind of like build a little bit differently. Again, more actually similar to how Web2 build with kind of handling errors of, you know, other services. Now, why have other folks did not do it? I mean, it is not a straightforward thing to build, right? It, and uh, 
like you kind of need to build it like from the bottom to the top. Like we've built everything from networking stack. We're not using, you know, standard peer-to-peer, like uh, lib peer-to-p, for example. We built completely different stack. You need to build consensus that is aware of uh, kind of sharding and data. Uh, so one of the things actually data availability is uh, pretty much looped in into consensus on a, on like a lower level uh, as messages are passed. Uh, like the the shards are originally coded and sent to other validators. So even if you have like massive failure, you can recover from a small subset of validators. So you have like kind of every single piece of the layer needs to be rethought in that way. And then at the same time, you need to work backwards from the experience and like, okay, well, I don't want a user to think about any of this. Like, how do we abstract all of that? And kind of like our Explorer doesn't show you shards. You never will see it. Like similarly, how you, you know, don't, don't go to like big table and see that like this is sitting on this, you know, plate and this is sitting on that plate. So, um, so all of those pieces kind of need to be thought out. And I think, um, a lot of folks kind of started from different direction. A lot of people in Web3 started from either, well, let's have everyone independent, right? The Cosmos approach. And there kind of, you need to now deal with all the security and with all the complexity uh, around bootstrapping the networks. Now that's been addressed by restaking other approaches, but that's kind of the uh, mindset there. Or as kind of Ethereum was trying to design this, it realized they have so much kind of, state already that they like it's really hard for them to migrate to something like this like they again they would need to like completely rebuild and, and change everything versus something like rollups was a more natural thing because it didn't require rebuilding the bottom layer uh for them uh but yeah i mean that's the, i would say that's really the kind of this trade-off around the synchronicity uh which you know for example for Anatoly, like his vision is that everything needs to, you know, should be synchronized kind of within uh, speed of light, which like, for example, um, we have a little bit different opinion there. And then for people who are kind of are in, in this direction, like they would need to rebuild everything from scratch. And so they opted in for more, maybe like layering uh, approach instead of uh, bottom up rebuild. Yeah, Ilya, one advantage slash trade-off that I think Ethereum has now with the roll-up roadmap is that there's a lot more experimentation, I guess, maybe through the free market and they're launching tokens. You have more fundraise. You can experiment with the EVM and also you're going to have like Eclipse with the SVM be a roll-up. I'm curious, how does that look on Nier? Um, I, I don't think like roll-ups is a big thing on Nier right now. I know that could be in the future. Can you still have that type of experimentation? Because I know few years ago, this is probably two years ago now, you actually had one of the four shards was Aurora, which is EVM compatible. And I think at the time it actually had about 80% of the TVL on Near itself. So yeah, I'm just curious how you think about that. Yeah, so the benefit is of this model is that you can actually launch other blockchains as just a smart contract. So Aurora was just the EVM implementation as a smart contract running on Near. And then because it was getting so much usage, there was a governance decision to allocate them a separate shard uh, to kind of uh, kind of have that traffic to not affect everybody else, and uh, yeah, I mean you can launch you can launch actually SVM just you know take that Rust code compile it and launch it as uh, as a smart contract on near. Obviously, it will not be as performant because not running natively, but you will get ability to run all the contracts inside it. Uh, you can launch Bitcoin and you know for, spoon the state and have you know a super ultrasound Bitcoin uh, running on near. <laughs> uh, so, 
So the benefit here is just really like, in again, in a way, this is a roll-up architecture, just like we kind of, you know, pun intended, rolled it up in, such that you don't need to think about the underlying uh, details. But uh, the indeed, there is like, you know, less of this speculative action on, you know, which which VM will work. I mean, Mertz had this uh, tweet, right, was like, you know, how many how many different stacks of different options at different stack, right? The, you know, you have like so many options, launch, launch so many rollups. Uh, obviously, we'll not need, like my, my opinion, I mean, there will be a bunch of rollups and there will be reasons to build like app-specific rollups as well as, you know, specific env- sub-environments. But we'll not need, you know, tens of thousands of the of like ge- general purpose rollups that are like not are not differentiated and not backed by a specific team or specific approach, right? So uh, this is where, like, as a developer, you know, think of near as more like a cloud, like a you know, you go to a cloud, you just launch your app, it scales to whatever need, needs you have. Versus rollup is like you spinning up your home server. You like, you know, you like chose the motherboard, you chose the CPU, you know, yeah, like you're feeling really cool. And then, you know, you're like, your internet goes down and, and the server goes down, right? So you need to like still, we'll later we'll figure out how you're going to like put it and replicate it and do all this work anyway. And Solana in this analogy is like a big mainframe that everybody can connect to and it's like <laughs> very performant supercomputer. So quick break to tell you about Access Protocol, the easiest and best way to stay up to date on what's happening in crypto by following your favorite publishers. And you can do all of it without a subscription, without having to worry about ads. And we all know subscriptions. How many do you have? 10, 20? Can you cancel it? It's all a mess. Well, Access Protocol solves this and they do it in a crypto native way. They have over 60 publishers that include CoinGecko, The Block, Crypto Slate, and a whole long list of independent creators. So how it works is you find your favorite publishers and you stake the ACS token. That's the access token. And once you stake, you have access to all that creator's content without the hassle of ads or subscriptions that you can't cancel and you don't know how many you have. Access Protocol already has over 225,000 users that are finding new creators, that are reading content, and even receiving NFTs from these creators. Because one of the cool things with Access Protocol is that these publishers, they can know who their subscribers are. They can make it where, okay, maybe we'll do an in-person an event or maybe we'll do an nft drop and we'll do it only to our most loyal stakers aka readers early 2024 they're even releasing v2 it's crypto native it's on solana and it's an awesome product but a link in the show notes to the hub uh it's the easiest way to get started so go check them out today quick break to tell you about an upcoming event i promise you don't want to miss it's blockworks biggest and best institutional conference called das london it's a two-day event happening in london this march where we're going to have over 700 institutions 130 speakers and a couple thousand of us all under one roof crypto is in a position for the first time to actually onboard these institutions and they're showing up we have companies from blackrock to visa launching real products in the space we have the real world asset narrative taking off we have things like payments that have been exponentially growing and then we have things like deep end happening in the solana ecosystem there's a ton of capital right now in this institutional space is going to be coming on chain. It's going to completely change the industry. Whether you are an institution or you're a retail user, or you just want to learn more about what's going on in the space, this conference is for you. You're going to be able to meet some of the best and smartest people in the space. The speaker lineup is absolutely incredible and you'll get to hang out with me. But the best part is you actually get 10% off your ticket if you use Lightspeed 10 when checking out. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, I recommend buying this today because one, you'll forget about it. Two, these ticket prices go up every single month. So anyways, I hope to see you there. Now, let's get back to the show. On the topic of rollups, I want to quickly touch on data availability i i had tweeted i don't remember the exact tweet but something about ethereum and celestia actually competing on data availability which uh really made everybody angry but uh <laughs> which you very, very much like <laughs> <laughs> and i i think a few folks from near actually uh tweeted or replied and said well actually near da is better than celestia and i said why 
And so I'm here to ask you, uh, how should we think about near DA and why, like in the, in the context of, of a role developer, why they would go with near over Celestia or Ethereum? Yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, as I mentioned, like near itself in a way, like, I mean, we, we have a roll up architecture just like rolled up under the hood. And so because of this, we have data availability on the consensus layer. It was always there. It's like in a paper uh, from the start and it's designed to make sure that the nearest data is, you know, fully available and, and replicated and kind of restorable at like large outages. And when we saw kind of this, you know, demand and, you know, it, I would say like with ZK proofs, it's pretty clear that like rollups make sense because they provide such a like massive cost reduction. If you want to launch like a specific application for a specific use case, uh, or you, you do have like an environment, like customized environment for some, for whatever reason, but you still need data to be published somewhere to ensure that everybody else can replicate it and everybody else can kind of, you know, run indexers and do all the work on top of it. Uh, as well as validate for for message passing, and uh, so kind of we all like we have data availability, so we just offered it. And uh, you know when we benched it, we were like thirty times cheaper than Celestia, you know eighty five thousand times cheaper than Ethereum. Uh, and at the same time, because it's sharded, uh, we already have sixteen megabytes per second of data availability right now, and this is with four shards. And you know as we add more shards, we have even more data, like data availability available. Uh, for folks to use. So th the idea there is like we have the stack that's pretty much people want because it's scalable data availability at low cost that's available. That's one second, you know, for confirmation time. And it's been live for three years, right? With no downtime. So you kind of have like, uh, and we have bridge already with, you know, ZK proofs as well uh, to Ethereum to prove kind of all of the required things on Ethereum when, you, when you're using it in optimistic or ZK proofs. So you have like whole stack pretty much ready to go. We have one rollup on mainnet, a bunch are uh, kind of uh, getting ready to launch. We integrated with rollup as a service. There's all the like uh, Arbitrum, CDK, uh, Starkware stacks. So like kind of all of the things are already there. So yeah, I'm just inviting everybody to build on top of that. <laughs> not not that, this, not that your audience is that, but. <laughs> hey, we have a diverse audience. <laughs> um, Okay, I read a little bit about the DA product that Near offers. I'm not 100% clear on it. Um, let's say Celestia, for example, has DAS, data availability sampling, which is like light clients can use erasure coding and testing to make sure that it's like probability to ensure that the data is actually there. Is that something that Near does? Or from what I understood it, it's that because you have all these individual shards, that if you're a L2 or a rollup, you can just follow that one shard. And so that is the form of sampling. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It's, they call it data availability sharding. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so the idea is like because I mean in a way like it, we're doing all the same parts like under the hood in the consensus on a shard level, and so yeah, you can kind of follow the shard where data is published. Uh, you can potentially subfilter from there as well, and uh, at the same time you do have the kind of zero knowledge proof of that uh, posting as well that you can use you know on Ethereum or on other places. Okay. So DA is only one of the products that Nier is offering. We've, we already talked about the L1, but there's a few others. Um, do you see DA as a commodity product that is almost say, here's a great product to use. Maybe those fees get pushed down to zero, but then you use these other services that Nier has, for example, to maybe keep customers there or keep rollups there? To extend, yeah. I mean, the, the way I see this is, um, and so maybe like kind of switching gears a little bit. So I mentioned in the beginning, like the, the overall vision is like, 
we want to make it easy to be, for people to use, you know, the Web3, self, like have self-sovereignty. And, you know, the blockchain is an important part of that. You know, rollups now offer kind of, you know, additional benefits and for specific use cases. Obviously, we have Solana, we have, you know, Cosmos chains, we still have EVM, like Ethereum, we have Bitcoin. And so one of the things that we started working about a year ago is, well, if you step back and you, you kind of start thinking from uh, base principles, like the missing piece is really the experience. Like, yeah, I, as a, my as a user experience is like fragmented. I have, you know, I have like 50 different like uh, windows with different wallets, with different like accounts. Like there's no notifications. There's no way to like keep track of what's going on. It's all kind of like not a really coherent experience, right? And every app, like every what we call app are not actually apps. They're not apps. They're just front ends for smart contracts. Like the apps are like, you know, Facebook is an app, right? It has all kinds of stuff. It onboards you, it, you know, make sure your journey is figured out. It has, you know, it re-engages you. It brings you like the, uh, like whatever the, the things you need, right? So, and this is where the idea of chain abstraction and kind of the product we've started building, which is blockchain operating system coming is like, can we do something that, provides user an experience, the full holistic experience of using kind of Web3 self-sovereign software without needing to think about the blockchain, the wallets, the zero X addresses, like all of the details that, you know, we love in blockchain space, but actually nobody cares. And again, Near is very much designed with that. We kind of, one of the reasons why applications like Sweatcoin, Kaiching, you know, PlayEmber and others have chosen Near is because it's like very like easy to integrate into existing Web2 software, kind of not show like all the Web3 kind of, you know, bits and pieces to the user and at the same time provide the value, you know, drop the transaction prices and all those things. And so can we do all that for all of the Web3? And so the answer is yes. And so we're bringing kind of, we brought some uh, like decentralized front ends piece uh, last year and we have actually an app launching called DabDab which actually combines 13 different EVM networks in one experience. So you don't need to switch tabs. You don't need to open anything. There's 100 different smart contracts you can use from one experience. And you you know, you know go to one website and you can use it everywhere and you don't care which chain is there on. Now, the next piece we're bringing is called account aggregation. And this is the idea that near account will be able to transact on all the blockchains, on Bitcoin, on Solana, on EVMs, on uh, Tendermints. And this is done by near network itself signing transactions on behalf of those addresses in such a way that, you know, kind of the private key behind this is, is distributed between validators. And what do you think about Polygon's approach? And how would you contrast it to how near does it? And how should I think about it as somebody who understands both at a very high level, but hasn't done the work required to actually go deep into either? So I would say, I mean, Polygon is complementary to this in the sense that what they're doing is they're bringing a, with CDK, they're bringing kind of the framework to launch rollups. Uh, again, we have data availability for CDK. We have few few folks building on that. And, um, and then they have the aggregation network, which aggregates proofs of all of those rollups in such a way that now you can kind of unify security. Now, we're actually working with them to, uh, build a prover for near blockchain as well. So we will actually have near blockchain proved as well with ZK proof. 
You can do the same with, you know, Bitcoin. You can do the same with, you know, Ethereum will be proven as well. Uh, and potentially with Solana. And now the cool thing is what this does is unifying security. So before we were like, you know, there's arguments on Twitter like, oh, your chain doesn't have enough, you know, security. The stake is too low, whatever, whatever. Maybe validators, you know, too centralized, too decentralized, like non-decentralized enough. Like all of that is starting to go away because now like, hey, here's a proof. I published it on Ethereum. Here's Solana proof. I published it on Ethereum, right? Now, even if like all the validators in Solana decide to do something else, like you cannot roll back beyond that point. Here's Ethereum proof and you publish it on Near. Here's Near proof and you publish it on Bitcoin, right? So now like we actually started to cross-link the security. And so you're going from a security of a single, you know, blockchain or roll up a single server to kind of unified security of the whole Web3 space. And so Polygon is building that stack to kind of aggregate security across different rollups and potentially other chains. Now, it's still not solving the experience level, right? You still need the way to kind of abstract all of this complexity out and hide the blockchains and really provide just like end user experience of like, hey, I want to send you some funds. I'll just send you a link. You click on it. Whatever kind of address, wherever you have it, it will receive there. Or, you know, you'll have a mapped address on the chain. This token, like one of my pet peeves is like, we bridges are kind of broken. I and mean, this is like pretty known, like everybody knows that. And, and the reality is we should just keep the assets where they were issued. If the, if the asset is issued on optimism, like OP, just keep it there. Don't bridge it anywhere. Instead, I can just have an address on optimism that receives it. And when I want to, you know, send it back and I don't have any gas token or whatever there, like somebody else can pay that gas for me. And so for, for chains that are like lower gas, this actually works. And you don't need to like have this kind of bridges complexity, which opens up a lot of the kind of worms around security, around uh, usability. And so instead you have this ability, like what we're building is leveraging this unified security layer, uh, leveraging, you know, again, with data availability, with other pieces kind of really like putting a lid on all that and then providing kind of single experience where you go to one app, you onboard, you start using apps. You don't even know which chain it's on. For example, get an ordinal, you swap it for an ordinal, you know, you lock ordinal, you borrow against it, USDC, this USDC is on near, and then you buy with that USDC something on Ethereum, but you don't even know this network, like which networks any of these actions are. So that's kind of what we're like getting to with, with all the pieces we're doing. And again, like for our, from our perspective, like if you plug it into our data availability, a lot of the other pieces of stack work a lot better because like all the, you know, everything else on top of near have been built with that in mind. But we're obviously, you know, integrating other pieces as well. Mm. Under this framework, how do you think about go-to-market? Are you going after end users or would it be more so protocols? And and how I'm asking that is like today, people do know where they interact, right? Like I know if I'm on Solana, I know if I'm on Optimism. Could I, in this future, know I'm on Solana, be using Jupiter, but then I want to make a trade that's a native Ethereum token? And for, for whatever reason, Jupiter decides to integrate, say, with Near to do that. Is that something that could happen here? And I, as a user don't even know that near exists yet you're still adding a lot of utility to the whole ecosystem. Yeah, so that's part of it. I mean, right now the go to market is for sure with applications that want to kind of be multi-chain. In a way like if you're an application builder right now, you're you choosing a specific ecosystem is actually limiting your target audience. And I mean, we've heard this right uh like many times that VCs like, "Oh, you should build on that chain, you should build on that chain." Is like 
like that logic is in general is broken because you should be building for all audience. Like it, sh it should not be for a chain audience. It should be for every, every audience. And so, so what we right now want to enable is this idea that like ideally any audience can come in and start using applications across like whenever that application is, right? Uh, so it doesn't matter we, where your tokens are, you know, like somebody else will pay your fees here uh, and kind of bridge this gap without you needing to think about like how to bridge this, like another chain, et cetera. And so, so right now we like the kind of first step is working with apps who want to be kind of uh, multi-chain and kind of go to this like broader audience. And because like, I mean, some of the pieces are not ready yet, so it's more uh, um, like, you know, first versions of this, uh, you know, people are doing need to build some pieces of smart contract on near to facilitate that. So we are working more with, you know, both big players like Sweatcoin who want to offer that experience with our users. Again, million, millions of uh, monthly actives and uh, folks who are building some experiences for Bitcoin and for maybe like uh, Ethereum, EVMs ecosystems. I would say like next step after that will be like enabling that for broader, like other applications who just want to like expand their audience and user base, you know, from just their chain to everyone. So that will be a, st a step after. One thing I think about when, when you, when you describe this vision is in this world of chain abstraction, you, you have a lot of dependencies, right? As, as a software engineer, these dependencies always change or let's say frequently change over time, you have to manage them somehow. And in the context of crypto, those dependency changes might be quite critical. How do you balance that with, because you need, you need to do that, but then you also need to focus on the experience part, like you said. How do you balance those two things together? Because that sounds very hard to me. And by dependencies, you mean like smart contracts on different chains or... Yeah, but then also like there's all sorts of different dynamics that get introduced when you start weaving these things together, right? Um, I, I like it's probably even hard for because now the system, let's say, it's, if it's if it was linear before, like just one blockchain is kind of linear, not necessarily, but now you're kind of mixing and matching them in, in different kinds of ways. Now you're introducing dynamics that you probably came and think about or reason about as a human. How do you think about that? Yeah, so part of this is this idea of intent. So this is where kind of instead of like you prescribing that like, you know, you need to execute, you know, put this much into this account and execute this and that and, and like a specific step. Instead, you're saying like, I want to receive an NFT in this address and I'm willing to pay this much, let's say near. Like I want to receive a mad lad in this Solana address and I'm paying near. And then somebody can go and like execute that and figure out how to like pay for this and, and uh, do that and receive this reward, right? So this is kind of like decoupling a little bit from like every front end needing to exactly like outline sequence of actions across all chains to really more like, you know, he here is the intent that you want. At the same time, part of the reason why we build de this, uh, the, we call it Near.js framework, uh, decentralized front end framework is to enable some of this uh, and kind of simplify some of this composability of front-end components themselves. So the front-end components, you can build them, you check them in on chain, and now everybody else can use them and they can lock the version. So you have like interesting ways to kind of simulate, to, you know, NPM locking, you can have lock a specific component that knows how to do a specific thing on specific chain. And so you can construct kind of experiences out of pieces from different chains into something that's like more... Uh, 
like you don't need to like figure out details of every single you know Lego block. You just kind of build your you know uh, uh, Falcon uh, out of it. This vision. If uh, you know if it comes true, this is exactly what crypto needs: is this chain abstraction. It does seem, and you know this as well. All ecosystems are kind of converging on a lot of the same ideas, even when it comes to like stateless validation and so forth. It's just kind of who's going to get there first, who can build the network effect and that brand. I'm curious, near when you came on Empire a long time ago, and I was working on the show, I think I labeled the, the title was like near the dark horse of the L1 wars or something, you know. And uh, Suzu back in the day invested near, he put it on his profile. Like you, you guys were blowing up at the time. That's before Suzu RIP. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, you raised an $800 million ecosystem fund. Like there was a ton of momentum, and you guys still have it. I think from an actual account usage or like user numbers per month, you're leading in the blockchain space right now. But from a narrative perspective, I just don't see much about near until say the last three or four months. I'm starting to see near pick up with your fast finality with the DA layer. What kind of happened between 2022 and today? Because I would say everyone in this ecosystem agrees that you and your team are some of the smartest, most innovative in the ecosystem. But from a narrative perspective, it's kind of not been there. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, we took a route of, I mean, we always focused on mass adoption and bringing users. Like our our, our, our kind of outstanding goal is how, like, how do we get to a billion, you know, daily active users in Web3? Because like, that's really like, we're changing, you know, the fabric of society at that point. And so we focused a lot, especially in 23, on doing that, on like working with projects, which are, for the most part, are maybe not as Web3 as, you know, like normally you would you would um, uh, think, right? Like Tesmos, for example, that are bringing this you know existing or really grown, fast growing user bases and switching from traditional rails. Like for Tesmos, for example, they were using Stripe, and so switching to Near for them was like hundred x reduction in fees from Web two to Web three, hundred x reduction in fees. And at the same time, they also switched the mindset. They went from, you know, oh, we're getting data and scoring everything on our service to the Web3 approach where they want to push the model to the user and score everything on their device, enable like a kind of, you know, on-edge computation for their models that are, uh, you know, doing advertising and doing like recommendations and stuff like this. So kind of a lot of the, our focus been there, which is like a little bit, you know, outside of the cryptosphere uh, in this case. And I think... Uh, part of this is also, uh, you know, you know, maybe some things we have we we, we were not doing very well. Uh, now we did kind of you know adjusting some of our space. I came back as a CEO of Linear Foundation in uh, in November, and so uh, part of this is also right now kind of building out this chain abstraction narrative. Right, that's not just near, but also the whole ecosystem and Web three space is moving toward, and same time creating this. Uh, interconnections, right? Uh, you know, working with Polygon, working with Eigenlayer, working with Arbitrum, you know, Optimism, with everyone, and really building out this, like with Agoric, with Anoma, with Cosmos folks, with Solana, like building out this, like, really movement that actually lifts everyone and then bringing that to now this massive user base that we now have, right? Again, uh, I think, like, I was just checking the DAP Raider, like, Kaiching app, which is the Cosmos app, is twenty something million monthly actors right now. It's like insane, uh, and they like they keep growing. They have like ton more markets to open up um, through their growth approach, right? Again, 
And so, so I think like that's kind of, you know, we last year we acquired the users. Now it's about interconnecting the chains and allowing just users to experience the whole Web3. I want to, while we're on this topic, weave together a few different threads into the single idea of value capture. So you, you mentioned working with folks like Eigenlayer, for example, and there's a lot of, I don't want to say competition again, I'll just say it. There, there's competition on data availability and some other aspects of, because the reality is the pie isn't actually that big today. I, obviously, everybody's idea is to grow it over time, but currently, in the short term, people have to deal with that. And which leads to, let's say, politics uh, and maybe alignment. And so you you put all these things together and then you add in tokens, right? So near has a token. And then the question becomes, okay, given that there's a fixed pie currently, where does the value accrue? How do you think about that? How should people think about near in, in that entire picture? Yeah, I mean... Obviously, it really depends on the time frame because, and I think that the reality, the the kind of, it has you know some pros, but the big con is that this mark, the, this ecosystem is very short term, and you know you know Solana seen that very much, right? Uh, kind of throughout twenty twenty two and part of twenty three, and so people kind at the same time want to think long-term, but also like want to see something short-term happening, right? And so I think long-term, again, the vision is really to be this like core, I mean, we call it operating system because it connects developers and users to all the blockchains, to all the kind of underlying hardware and ecosystems. And there is a value accrual there because it, it allows to, you know, facilitate this interactions and transactions that are happening through the whole ecosystem. Now that vision will take time to, you know, to, to build out. Right. And so at the same time, yeah, you see a more short term kind of people feeling the competition and, and kind of, uh, arguments from there. And, and as you said, alignment, which is kind of, uh, like a question more around like, you know, wh- which token is used where and how, and you know, how it accrues value. But like, again, in more, it feels like more shorter term type thinking than like more long term. Now, for me, the the value has like few components. One is the uh, kind of governance and like near has, you know, a portion of the rewards are being, and which is inflation is being taken and put into a treasury, which is allocated to build public goods in the ecosystem, continue developing protocol, continue developing kind of pieces of the ecosystem. Uh, and so governance is, you know, part of that is like how to direct that, which has value in itself. Part of it is, you know, securing the network and and kind of on the other side, providing the um, kind of benefits of, of secure network. Part of it is, you know, obviously using for transaction fees, for storage. Uh, so it's utility. Part of it is the moneyness, right? Is ability to use it as collateral, as utility uh, in other protocols and kind of providing uh, like base of exchange, right? And we see Ethereum is kind of moving in that direction right more, although they also have utility. Um, and then part of it is just brand and kind of just asset on itself, right? Like like Dodge, it's just an asset. <laughs> and so like I think of, of every token as as combination of this like four components. And, uh, you know, the percentages of those components can move 
over time and like how much each each of that component, like how prevalent it is as well as how valuable it is. So, I mean, that's kind of a high, higher level framework. And then again, depending on the time frame, you can kind of think of like, well, over time, for example, you know, this governance part it becomes really valuable because it directs and defines what this ecosystem evolving. Uh, you know, utility, if we have a billion, for example, transactions per day, which is, you know, like is a lot, but at the same time, uh, as we kind of scaling more usage and getting more uh, uh, like, the, you know, this is much going to be burned. And so this is kind of the effects you're going to see. At the same time, is like, you know, if we have a billion users using this, like the, the brand value, the kind of the overall recognizability of this will be huge, right? So it will have kind of that component value itself. So I think, you know, timeframes, you know, the kind of, and how people considering each of this component is like, it's more personal, obviously, right now. But for me, that's that's kind of how I think about it. I don't know if this fully answers your question, but I'm also curious, what do you, what do you think? I don't, I have no idea, honestly. That's why, <laughs> that, that's why I'm curious. <laughs> it's really tough. Yeah, it's, I mean, so many things are about narrative right now. And that's also where you see narrative exhaustion. Me and Mart were talking about it yesterday. It's like, if there's not a new narrative every three weeks, people just get pissed off and then, you know, start hitting on each other on Twitter. So um, I mean, it's a pretty- why, like, it's a problem. It's like too short term. Like people don't give time for stuff to like, I mean, it takes like a year plus to like build and get to market something, right? I mean, this main net took like two two plus years to build. And even then it's like, you know, when you build, when you launch main net, it's not like you're done. It's like, it, you just started. <laughs> mm. So, yeah. I'm curious, Ilya, you are pretty well known for your background in AI. I think you may have written a paper with Sam Altman at some point. Is that correct? Not with Sam Altman, no. But the paper I wrote kind of is called Attention is All You Need, which is the basis of, uh, it's called like technological transformers, which is used in ChatGPT and MidJourney and all of those pieces. Okay. Well, you're very well known for it. I'll say that. I, I listened to like two podcasts on you and they talked about AI with you for like 45 minutes. <laughs> it's like, that wasn't even on here. <laughs> I want to know how you think blockchain and, and AI can actually play a role together because there's a lot of speculation there and it, it doesn't really <laughs> seem like Merck's like I quit. <laughs> but I I have heard even on like Surtechery, which I listen to and read all the time, and it's like AI actually does make the case for digital scarcity in the sense like proving who created an object or you know who's the signer behind a video, etc. So just with all of your experience, where do you think there could actually be an intersection between crypto and AI? That's just not speculation to pump our backs. <laughs> Well, depends again. Depends on the on the time frame, right? Um, so, so the way I think about it, there's kind of um, a few components. One is, I call it like our society operating system needs an upgrade. Uh, like we, I mean, in general, hum- humanity is very susceptible to manipulations and especially through language, uh, but also through images. This is not a new problem. The Byzantine fault tolerance coming from Byzantine journals problem which is about like manipulation and information like uh uh misrepresentation photoshop have existed for a long time images were photoshopped the you know fake news is not a new thing it have happened in like elections before before and so what you know this LLM technologies give you is a scale, right? You can do personalized like information manipulation, an agent that will go and talk to you and convince you of something, or you know, the your favorite candidate will slide into DMs and like tell you exactly what you want to hear, right? 
or you go to their website and it's like are fully generated for you specifically that their program is like adjusted specifically is that you read it and like, yeah, that sounds good, right? So what we need is kind of a cryptographic reputation, like cryptographic authentication and reputation layer under all of this. So similarly how we had a transition from HTTP to HTTPS when internet started, well, uh, that like HTTP is insecure, you know, you could have seen everybody's password if you're sitting in a coffee shop. Like we're kind of in that level right now the, on the content level. On the content level, like somebody can take a screenshot, you know, adjust what, uh, like what says on the website and post it on Twitter. Like you don't need to use like AI models to do that. Like that's the easiest way to misrepresent information. And I was talking to some journalists and they, they, have, they have happened to them. Like somebody took their article, changed the title, posted on Twitter, and then some people are reaching out to them saying, why the hell are you saying that? And they're like, that's not true. <laughs> so what we need is a cryptographic authentication so that whenever you look at content, like this video, for example, or audio you're listening, you're able to see like this is signed by Ilya, by Garrett and Mert. You can verify like that this is like authentic. authentic. You can see maybe comments like that are like, you know, generic, not to specific venue, but kind of associated with this content. And so if there is a misrepresentation information, somebody can like right away comment on it and wherever you see it, you'll kind of see that. So that's like a, I call it like society OS upgrade that's just needed. And it, it's true about government, you know, all their all of their operations are on paper. You can just, you know, DDoS IRS with, for example, you know, millions and millions of pages of AI generated tax returns, like all kinds of cool stuff uh, that will be starting to happen. Uh, I mean, bad stuff that like we need to fix. Uh, so, so that's piece number one. Piece number two is kind of thinking more Web3 about AI is, so right now, if you're using ChatGPT, on the other side, there is some piece of software that responds to you, but you have no idea what it is, right? It can be, you know, a model. It can be an engineer who has like if statement, if Mert, uh, you know, if account is from Mert, then respond this, right? Uh, if it's like Goldman Sachs and, you know, responded, they should buy this token. It can be something where it's like literally at every uh, token, they run an auction to sell it to the highest bidder, right? So you can like literally manipulate at scale and just like offer to shift opinions or, or offer specific products directly in output of the model. So here, there's two things that's, that needs to be done. One is the model should run on, on your device then you know it's not manipulated. You know it's exactly the model. Uh, you also want to know which, like what training data the model is trained on because otherwise it can be completely biased. Uh, so you want an open source model that you can run locally so that are small enough. So I'm, I run Mistral, for example, on my laptop. Uh, it's actually, you know, on M2 is possible to run. And, you know, I don't, like none of my data is leaving my computer pretty much, which is awesome. So that's like a, you know, I think fundamental user-owned AI. And then the other side is like, we should have a way to run models and prove the result, which are bigger or contain data that's kind of community owned or private, et cetera. And so that's way harder and requires a lot more research. And this is where um, there's a more longer term, but there's a lot of projects that are working on that. A combination of CK proofs, ML, you know, optimistic ML and some other methods to really achieve that. Not there, but this is like in progress. What's more interesting to me is actually uh, the mental agility you must need to go from AI to crypto and succeed in both. And 
because, you know, the traditional advice is do something you're a domain expert in as a, as a startup and you probably will still fail. But then you're like, nah, you know, I will do AI, but also blockchain. Um, and, and so I'm curious, how do you, and you know, not everybody can do that, right? Uh, very few people can actually go between, and, and I troll these people because they're generally like 20 year olds who like try to raise uh, on Ethereum, but then now are doing a front end on uh, chat GPT. And then now they're back again, uh, right? Like if you're in crypto pivots, AI kind of business, but you actually understand both. So I'm curious, how do you, how do you do that? Like, how do you just go between different extremely complex domains? And would you have any advice to anybody who even thinks about doing that? Yeah, I mean, well, with AI, it's, I mean, it has been a journey, right? I've, I started diving into AI when I was like 14 or 15, right? Building my first neural networks. I watched all of the, cla- like, all of the online classes that were coming out. Um, and also my degree was in, you know, in applied math. So, uh, it's, it's hard to say like, there's like a trick outside of like, you know, spend uh, five years doing it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I mean, with blockchain, there was like few, few hacks that we used, right? I, I would say like, we knew nothing. Like, I, I mean, it was kind of embarrassing because, uh, I, I tapped into a, a friend of mine who also went to blockchain from AI before who was in VC. And I said, like, hey, we're considering doing a, a layer one protocol. And he's like, so what's the consensus you're going to use? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> um, so this is like when we're just like just starting to think about it. But I mean, the two things we did, one one was like just do a deep dive on papers and kind of, you know, the, the state of the research um, was there. The other one is talk to experts, right? So we did, I mean, we did talk to Vitalik and Justin Drake. We talked to, you know, Zaki with, uh, we, and then at some point we realized like, why are we just talking with that? We should record that because ev- probably everybody will be asking the same questions as we did. And so that's where whiteboard series came out where we, you know, had Anatoly on it, Zaki, you know, uh, Ethereum folks, Polkadot, and like at this point, 50 protocols like Filecoin and others, and really just like grilled them on their design and why they did it. And so being more, kind of open and inquisitive about kind of, uh, and so we weren't like very dogmatic about our approach at all. We were like, hey, we want to pragmatically build and solve this problem. And so like, hey, there was a better, some, like pretty much what happened is we talked to Polkadot, we realized there's Erasure coding, which we didn't know kind of, I mean, we knew that that exists, but we didn't realize it can be applied in this way. And sent, that led to us like redesigning a lot of pieces of our own design because it kind of solved a lot of problems. Same as like, you know, as Stateless Validation matured, as ZK is maturing, you kind of, okay, well, let's dive in, let's re- like understand like what it means, how it changes things. And so don't hold like specific dogma, dogma around specific uh, thing and be always open. And then, yeah, talk to experts, talk to people who are actually on the edge of the research and be willing to kind of take their position, but also challenge them. And so like we've have broken a couple of protocols on our whiteboard series as well, where, uh, you know, they haven't survived since then, but <laughs> I mean, not because of us, but, uh, but generally like be also like, Hey, you know, why does this make sense? Like not always, it, not always it does. And, and, and learn from that as well. Got it. Yeah. That's, that's good advice. And anybody listening, 
do that instead of just pivoting uh, at, at a whim for at the word of Jason uh, C. And so we're at 57 minutes now. I do have one final question and then Garrett, you can, you can go. The question is going to be, so you obviously have, you, you've been doing AI stuff since 14, 15. You've also now built a layer one protocol and you've talked to a lot of people. And so you have a different insight than most. And, and I'm curious, when you just think about crypto as an entire industry, holistically and from, from some you know distance outwards what do you think still what what are what do you think are like still like the top biggest problems the top three biggest problems that you think we need to talk about and improve to maximize the probability of success going forward that's a really good question um i think the biggest biggest problem is security i think the like for the space that kind of tap like town's security as like the main thing. And, you know, we like have this battles on Twitter or whatever, who's decentralized and more secure and whatnot. Like we do very little to actually secure people's funds uh, as a space. And, and like, that seems like the most important thing in the, in this whole, <laughs> in this whole endeavor. Right. I mean, like the amount of people, like their funds being stolen, like every day is just insane. And so, uh, I think until until we really like address that fundamentally and like and, and you know like we're doing some pieces of this, but I think like it's kind of a fundamental space problem. Um, like it, you know, it's hard for institutions to come in. It's hard for individuals to come in if they keep hearing that somebody just lost hundred million dollars. Like it's like not a thing. You know, you don't go to a bank that you know yesterday reported they lost hundred million dollars. Like that's. <laughs> And so, so I, from my perspective, that's like probably the biggest uh, part. And I, I did tweet about like a bunch of security measures we should be taking, you know, kind of across the board. Uh, and, and within that is like the, you know, self-custody recovery, all the, all those pieces are like, I, I associated them with security as well as like that, that pieces, if you like can, you know, can lose access to your account, like completely, it's also like, you know, in a way it's not secure. Like that's not, that's not a security secure solution. So, so I think that's kind of the, the biggest piece for me. Um, I think the other part is, I mean, we do have like the space have an image problem clearly. Uh, and so like the speculation is not helping. I like, it, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's hard to, to like evaluate what to do with that because speculation is beneficial for creating momentum and, and getting, you know, people excited and having this initial funding for teams to like really do something. So like, it's not, it's not like it's completely bad, but the flip side of this, right. Is that it's also like when you lose momentum or when, you know, you don't have this time to build out and like get to go to market, like get to product market fit, which sometimes takes two, three years uh, to get right. So, uh, and you know, we like, people go and argue on Twitter <laughs> about all of this, right? But but uh like I think that that is a big problem and, and I hope the chain of traction can solve some of this. So instead of like, you know, everybody needs all the time to be like at the top of their narrative, you can kind of like actually go build your product and you're like on top of everybody's narrative. And like so um but I think that that like kind of solving that, you know, 
narrative communication, speculation piece that especially right now, like just like as a ball rolls between different ecosystems, like I feel we kind of need to resolve that. Uh, and I mean, finally, like the, this just general, like you, when we, even when we do have user adoption, like how do we, how do we bring users to like appreciate something because like right now we have literally two use cases. One is an airdrop shit, shit, like shitcoin farming thing. Right. And then the other one is kind of payment settlement, uh, thing where, you know, potentially we even like it can be hidden from the users that this is happening on blockchain. And so what kind of, how do we expand those to become like more and more useful for a broader, you know, like I can originate loans that I'm actually can pay for stuff without, you know, this collateral being something else than my other, my other crypto. So like, how do we expand use cases to be like more, like it's still going to be in the same, you know, financial related space, you know, loyalty and others, other things, but like now kind of touching more real life um, kind of interactions, right? So really connecting to real life interactions more and more. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is great. I think near, like I said, I've been following it for a long time, but I just now have kind of gotten reaccustomed with everything you're working on. It is really fascinating. I like how I've, I've always been on kind of the barbell side of crypto where you have something like Ethereum with the modular roadmap. Solana is kind of the opposite of that with the global state. And I think near is also very interesting in that you guys have this sharding roadmap that not a lot of other people are doing right now. So it's very fascinating, mate. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. For sure. Thanks for having me. We'll see you next time. All right, I've got a little ending note here. First, thank you so much for listening to the full episode. If you really liked it, hit subscribe. But secondly, make sure you sign up for DAS. This is BlockWorks' biggest institutional conference happening in London in March. I've included a link in the show notes and also a discount code. You get 10% off. Make sure to use Lightspeed10 when you sign up. All right, I'll see you there. And I'll see you next time on Lightspeed. Lightspeed.